Greetings. You're listening to the Bonnie Boat Sailing Podcast. My name is Chris Smith. Whether you're a grizzled old salt, pining for the days of wire rope halyards, or a greenhorn, wondering what the hell a dolphin striker is, this is the podcast that seeks to fill the need for everybody's third most favorite pastime. That is, talking about sailing. Welcome to this week's episode of the Bonnie Boat Sailing Podcast. If you're just joining us, this first batch of episodes chronicles the refit and subsequent adventures of my wife Ryan and I aboard our 1967 Pearson Ariel Firefly. We spent two years on the hard fixing up the old girl and took her down the ICW from Virginia to the Florida Keys and back. Cheers! So we left off in the last episode, dropping anchor in Lake Sylvia in Fort Lauderdale, having had a failed attempt to cross to the Bahamas. I was feeling pretty low at that point, and I know Ryan was a bit worried about me because I'm pretty, usually pretty even-keeled, as it were. Uh, but up to that point, uh, the entire two-year refit and the craziness leading up to our departure from Virginia, uh, the whole trip down the East Coast was, in my mind, leading up to getting across to the Bahamas. That was the goal. So the, and the realization that we had tested ourselves and found our preparation wanting was, I found, pretty demoralizing. Uh, and that, that's kind of how it seemed at the time. Uh, and even in that moment, feeling that way, I understood that really we were pretty lucky. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, boo-hoo, your yacht trip didn't go the way you planned. And you're sitting on your boat in South Florida while it's leading back home in Virginia, and you're bound for the Florida Keys. Tough break, right? Uh, but even knowing that, uh, it didn't really take the sting out of what was I, I was still perceiving on a, on a certain level as, as a failure. Uh, so I was feeling pretty bummed that afternoon, and unfortunately there were some antics within the anchorage that served to distract me. So right in the mi- middle of the anchorage there in Lake Sylvia uh, was a Pearson commander, uh, which is the day sailor version of the Pearson Ariel. Uh, it's the same hull. Uh, it's a, has a larger cockpit, uh, smaller cabin, and in fact, the commander is of all the boats that Carl Alberg designed was the boat that he sailed himself in his later years. Uh, anyway, this particular boat was more or less permanently moored in the anchorage and had about seven different anchors out, uh, lots and lots of road going to each anchor which is in fairly poor taste in a crowded anchorage. You know, like if, if there's a hurricane coming, you know, all bets are off. You just, you do what you got to do. Uh, but short of that, um, you know, in, in, in the course of normal anchoring, etiquette is you put out a reasonable amount of scope uh, and maybe, maybe if you're old school, you put a second stern anchor out or a, an anchor or stern if, the, if there's a reversing current. But if, if you have a modern anchor, I don't even think that, you know, that may be unnecessary. So this guy had seven anchors out, uh, and he, which puts him well into the clueless derelict category. So this, this decent-sized trawler comes into the anchorage that afternoon uh, and gets one of the slack anchor roads from this boat wrapped around his prop. Uh, and we could see a bit of a commotion going on. At one point, the trawler started slowly dragging the Pearson commander around. Uh, and so after a minute, you know, a couple of minutes, a bunch of the dinghies from the boats next to this whole fiasco started converging on the scene. Uh, and maybe another 20 minutes go by and I could see there was a guy in the water. It seemed like maybe he was struggling a little bit. Uh, and I thought maybe I could help out. Uh, and I, and I really needed a, a project, something to get my mind, something to, 
off the uh, the failed crossing to get myself out of the dumps. So I rode over with my snorkel gear. Uh, and the uh, the skipper of the trawler was an older guy. It seemed like he was getting pretty tired in the water from trying to untangle the the road off of off of his prop. And I, I remember there was a small red boat out of Newfoundland there. Uh, and there were some pretty badass sailors. We had spoken to them a little bit. Uh, they had a lot of sea miles into them. Uh, and the skipper said to me, he was in there in his dinghy, uh, and he had this very distinct accent that I, I will not attempt to replicate, but he said something like, all right, Junior, you're up. So so I hopped in the water, put on my uh, snorkel gear, and uh, the skipper of the trawler was was underst- understandably hesitant to cut the road off of his, this guy's prop. Uh, and so he had been trying to untangle it. But I, I dove down, and I just couldn't see any way to untangle it. It was wrapped just bar tight around the prop and the prop shaft, and it had looped over itself several times. And it was, I mean, it was just, there was no play in it at all. Um, and there were a bunch of dinghies around at this point, and, and pretty much everyone was the, of the opinion that it was time to just cut the road. Uh, and the, the skipper, or whoever was on the Pearson Commander, was noticeably absent. So the boat had just been left there for who knows how long. Um, and he had six other anchors at that point, too. So it wasn't like the uh, it was about to go anywhere. Uh, so I dove down, and I, I cut it free, and, and, and that was that. Uh, and it was my little adventure slash good turn for the day. But that brings me to the subject of derelict boats in Florida. And if you're not familiar with this particular phenomenon, uh, there are a lot of sailboats in Florida. And in certain parts of the state, there's heated conflict between waterfront landowners and boaters. Um, and there's a lot of boats down there that are abandoned or semi-abandoned, decrepit, non-mobile. Uh, some of them have people living aboard and some of them are just have just been left there. Um, and so municipal, mun- municipalities under the influence of, of wealthy landowners have passed or tried to pass anchoring restrictions in order to have legal ways to remove these derelict boats. And if it were simply a case of getting derelict boaters to clean up their act, I, I understand the viewpoint of property owners. You know, it's in a lot of cases, most of these boats do not have functioning marine heads. So you have people pooping in the water. Uh, and, and as this story previously shows, you know, they, these boats can be a hazard to navigation. Um, and I think clearly the states or the municipalities have an interest in keeping the waterways clean and, and clear for navigation. Um, but the other side of it, and the really galling side of it is that in a few places, notably Miami and Fort Lauderdale, there's a mindset among some of some property owners where they believe that nobody has a right to anchor in front of their houses uh, and that their property rights extend to the view beyond the borders of their proper property, uh, which is something that in the parlance is called the view shed, <laughs> if you can believe that. And these property owners believe that some arbitrary notion of what's acceptable what's an acceptable use of the waterway should be enforced by the state and these people are are generally wealthy enough to influence the local legislation Uh, you know it's a typical nimby not in my backyard syndrome uh just kind of run amok gone haywire Uh, and i think it's a position that's pretty detestable and is deeply antithetical to the to the ideals of, of our country and and really just the fair notion of use of public resources. Um, anyway, that's a bit of a bit of a side channel there. <laughs> um, so we decided to keep chugging down the ICW to the Keys. Uh, we stopped in Royal Palms to have the motor looked at, 
after it cut out on us in the Gulf Stream. Uh, so we had it serviced, and the, um, the guy who was working on it said he couldn't find anything wrong. Uh, he did a really good job, though. He, he tuned everything up, and the motor definitely ran ran really well after that. And I do wish that I had done some more homework in terms of, of working on motors. Uh, I'm a little better now, but not much better. And having some more knowledge and confidence to fix the motor would have definitely made the trip less stressful and, and saved us a good, good deal of money as well. We stopped in uh, Hollywood Beach, which is just a little anchorage off the ICW there. We had some of the best tacos I've ever had in my life there in Hollywood Beach. There's a Korean barbecue taco truck that was unbelievable. Um, uh, and that evening we saw a dragon boat uh, working out in the river. Uh, and they came by and I, I called out to them. I was asking how fast they were going. Uh, and they had an extra paddle and an extra seat in the boat. And they invited me to, to come in, come on board. So I jumped in and, and worked out with them. Uh, it was a lot of, a lot of fun. I'd never been in a dragon boat before. Uh, it's kind of like, I mean, it's a team rowing boat, but it's, uh, it's paddled like a canoe. Uh, and it's like, I think there's eight, 10 people in the boat. So it was a lot of fun. You can get them. They get going pretty fast too. Hard work for sure. Uh, and Ryan got stuck with the chores that evening. Uh, so that was nice of, nice of her to let me go go and play a little bit. <laughs> From there, we headed to No Name Harbor, no Name Harbor on Key Biscayne. Uh, we went through our last opening bridge of the trip south, and I believe Ryan did a little dance for the occasion. We were both pretty excited to be done with opening bridges. Uh, so No Name Harbor is a little, tiny little man-made harbor at the north end of Biscayne Bay. Um south end of Key Biscayne, I believe. Uh, and there's a state dock there that you can land the dinghy at. Uh, there's a restaurant and there's some beaches. So we walked around, we checked out the beach um, we, where we saw tourists hand-feeding raccoons in broad daylight, which was horrific and terrifying. <laughs> uh, we hung out at a coffee shop and, uh, and just kind of lived it up a little bit. From No Name, we headed down to Boca Chita, which is one of the ragged keys uh, about halfway down the length of Biscayne Bay. And we were able to get some good sailing in uh, both those days, as I recall. Uh, Biscayne Bay is gorgeous, clear water, it's shallow. Um, you can see Stiltsville and the Miami skyline at the northern end of it. Uh, and there's coral reefs and small scrubby keys along the eastern edge of Biscayne Bay. Uh, and then mainland Florida is to the west. So we popped out of the crazy, densely populated boats everywhere glitzy South Florida scene and into Biscayne Bay and we had some super relaxing light wind sailing which was just what we needed after the attempted uh, Bahamas crossing. Uh, I think we, we may have even opened a beer underway uh, which we generally don't do but it was pretty mellow. We had uh, had the sails up and just just relaxing. It was nice. Uh, pretty sweet afternoon of sailing. Uh, so we made it down to Boca Chita uh, and it felt like we had arrived in the islands. There's a, another man-made harbor there, similar to No Name, Concrete Bulkheads. And we tied up to the wall. There's a small lighthouse at the entrance. Uh, palm trees swaying in the wind. Crystal clear water. Fantastic. Beautiful. Uh, it was what we were looking for. Uh, we went for a dinghy adventure. Uh, Ryan caught a little bar barracuda. I did some snorkeling. Walked around. It was, uh, it was great. We had a nice day. And that evening we went to bed. Uh, it rained quite a bit, and so we closed the boat up. And although we had mosquito netting over the hatches, and we stuffed the hawse pipe with a t-shirt so that none of the mosquitoes could get in, um, the park rangers came by to check that we had paid our dockage fee. Uh, and in the short time that the hatch was open, we had about three trillion mosquitoes get into the boat. Uh, and it was like a scene from a horror movie. 
uh, it was hot and muggy after the rain, uh, so we were sleeping completely covered up to prevent the mosquitoes from just flaying the skin from our living bones. I think Ryan maybe had her nose sticking out of uh, from under a blanket. Uh, I was completely under a sheet. Um, you could still hear the mosquitoes kind of clamoring to get through the barrier. Occasionally one would sneak through a crack and the whole, the whole night we would be awoken by the sound of a mosquito buzzing in, in your ear. Uh, it was a horror show. So we, we got up at first light to get underway. Uh, and it was flat calm day, so we motored with, with all the hatches open on the boat, thinking we could you know, get some air going through the boat and, and drive the mosquitoes out. But when we dropped anchor in Tarpon Basin, uh, which is on the Florida Bay side of Key Largo, the, uh, the boat was still completely full of mosquitoes. And I spent probably an hour, hour and a half down below, killing them one by one. Uh, and at the, end, at the end of this cleansing, the cabin top and the walls of the boat looked like a Jackson Pollock painting or something, smeared mosquitoes, guts, and blood, our blood. <laughs> so that was our welcome to the Florida Keys. <laughs> so a few days prior, we had gotten a, a cryptic text from Jason and Kirsten on Chickadee uh, that was simply consisted of a, a pair of Latin long coordinates. Uh, and so we had rowed ashore in Tarpon Basin. We were walking around uh, along the overseas highway there, in Key Largo, uh, we found found a watering hole to slake our thirst and snag some Wi-Fi. So we googled the uh, the coordinates, and it looked like they were in a little anchorage uh, in Tavernier called Community Harbor. Uh, and we were about a short day hop north of them, so we made a made a plan to go find them. So there are two ways to make your way along the Florida Keys: uh, the ocean side, which is known as Hawk Channel, which runs between the Keys and the fringing barrier reefs, which are about three, four miles off of the Keys, something like that. And then there's the Florida Bay side, which is inside the Florida Keys in between mainland Florida and the Keys. Uh, so we were heading along the Bay side of the Keys, which is shallower and better protected than Hawk Channel. And so heading southwest along the inside of the Keys there, there's a small ser- a series of small bays and that are ringed with mangrove islands and shoals, Blackwater Sound, Buttonwood Sound, uh, barn sound, uh, and they're they're very different from anything else we had seen up to that point. And if you look at a satellite map, you can see these kind of rings of mangroves and shoals around these bays, uh, and where one bay leads to the next, where the edge of these these mangrove rings kind of meet, intersect, there are these cuts through the mangroves that connect to the next bay. And so you're running the boat through these densely foliated, narrow channels with dozens of branching channels running deep deep into the mangroves. Uh, it's very cool. It feels very tropical or equatorial. Uh, it's definitely unlike anything we'd seen on the trip or you'd see on the mainland up to that point. So we made it down to Community Harbor, uh, anchored the boat up, and we rode in to find uh, Kirsten and Jason. We spent a couple days hanging out with them and relaxing on the hook, uh, and then it was time to keep moving. Our plan was to try to make it down to Key West in time to meet my family, who were coming down for a week's vacation. Which brings us to the other major learning experience of the trip, uh, which well, I'll read from the blog here. This blog post is called Hark Upon the Gale. This sailing racket can be pretty hard. It may seem like we blithely flit from anchorage to anchorage, watering hole to watering hole, sharing adventures with other like-minded piratical maniacs, but the truth is that sometimes this sailing thing can really suck. Our plan was to try and make it down to Key West in time to meet my family for a week's visit. Failing that, 
we figured we could leave the boat at Boot Key Harbor in Marathon. We left Tavernier early in light and shifty winds, motored through the sounds of the upper keys, and had some beautiful sailing just outside the Channel 5 bridge, southwest of Almorada. We anchored in Long Key Bight, which is protected from the north, west, and south, in anticipation of a cold front forecast to bring strong winds clocking from the southwest to the north the following day. Long Key Bight isn't a particularly snug anchorage, but there weren't many options with protection from all the right quadrants. Plus, we have extremely oversized ground tackle, so we weren't too worried. The winds began to increase around midnight that evening, and by 2.30 a.m. had increased to the point where sleep was increasingly unlikely. At 4 a.m., the winds increased yet again, and we were roused by the sound of Bug, our dinghy, slamming against the side of Firefly. I leapt on deck to discover us beam on to the wind, suggesting strongly that our anchor was dragging. It was so dark out I had no reference on land to see if we were moving. I ran forward to check the road to see if I could feel the anchor skitter across the bottom, but the road was solid, albeit streaming aft at a weird angle. Uh, then I saw a lobster buoy float by at about one knot, and there was no doubt we were dragging. Uh, if we didn't act fast, the boat would be on a shoal, mud if we were lucky, coral if we weren't. I would have estimated the wind at a steady 30 knots at this point. The radio said later it was gusting to 40. Uh, it was pitch black, it was very rough, very loud, and very, very scary. Uh, Ryan came on deck, we got the motor started, tried to get the nose around into the wind and haul in the anchor, in her underwear, of course. Uh, we couldn't get her around head to wind, so I hauled the road up the side of the boat. Uh, and I remember thinking that it was surprisingly easy to haul in uh, and being afraid that the shackle ha had parted uh, between the anchor and the chain and I was just pulling in the chain. Um, that turned out not to be the case, and five or six days later, I'm still sore, so I think adrenaline had something to do with it. Upon hauling the anchor aboard, we discovered the source of our trouble. A medicine ball-sized plug of mud and grass was stuck between the roll bar and fluke of the anchor. The shark tooth shape of the mantis had simply sawed the plug out of the bottom, and we popped loose. With the anchor aboard, we used the GPS to find a safe spot and got the anchor set again. This time I put all 100 feet of our chain, plus another 20 feet of nylon road, and she held. We spent the next 36 hours on anchor watch, and on pins and needles until the gale blew itself out. I'm not sure what was worse, the craziness at 4am or spending the next day and a half stressing about the anchor holding. You often hear about the howling of the wind in the rigging, and it's no exaggeration. There was no escape from the noise, and the pitch of the wind varied minutely with its strength. The effect is like some psychotic improvisation, with gusty peaks and valleys, motifs and threatening phrases as the boat swung on a road. Coupled with the sharp slap of waves against the hull and the hissing of whitecaps, it was pretty intense. I can't imagine a storm at sea. The wind was blowing 20 knots two days later, forecast to decrease to 15, but they were still calling for 5-7 to seven foot seas in Hawk Channel, which is the only way to get to Marathon slash Boot Harbor Key, sorry, Boot Key Harbor, so we decided to slog back the inside of the keys to Tavernier. The first hour was, quote, salty, but we hoisted our double reefed main, healed the boat a bit, she steadied out, accelerated, and all of a sudden we were having fun again. So in hindsight, I don't think that we, I think we didn't have enough scope out for the amount of wind and chop that we had, uh, coupled with less than ideal holding. Uh, we regularly anchored in 25 knots of wind on relatively short scope, uh, say 5 to 1 or even less. Um, 
due to our oversized anchor and chain uh, chain road. And it's super useful in tight anchorages to be able to sneak into spots where the bigger boats uh, can't fit. Um, what I neglected to consider is that there's a big difference between steady five, 20, steady 25 knots and blowing 30s gusting into the 40s. Um, you know, the wind exhorted by the, uh, the force exhorted by the wind on a surface varies by the square of the velocity. So you double the wind speed and the force increases by a factor of four, uh, which is pretty terrifying if you think about it too much. <laughs> uh, anyways, clearly there was enough power in those gusts to saw a plug out of the bottom. Uh, and secondly, the, the holding was pretty marginal with the relatively shallow layer of mud and grass on top of hard coral. Um, and a lot of the bottom in the Keys is like that. Um, in fact, the holding in Community Harbor is, is pretty bad too. And during the few days that we had stayed prior to heading out to Long Key, uh, there was a boat that drug in Community Harbor and ended up in the mangroves. Um, I've also heard anecdotally that the way the, the anchor failed by sawing a piece out of the bottom is, is a fairly common mode of failure down there in the Keys for those anchors. Um, I only have the one experience, but I spoke with a guy who, uh, before I even told him how we had drug and how the anchor had, had put, drug, uh, he asked us if we tore a hole out of the bottom. So for what it's worth, I think that there may be a weakness of the newer style like Mantis and Rockna anchors uh, in that specific type of bottom when it's really windy. Um, but our Mantis is such a badass. It's such a great anchor. It's, it's hard to imagine... Uh, any anchor doing much better in that situation. Uh, and they don't pay us to say that. <laughs> maybe they should. Um, but, you know, maybe something with a lot more surface area, like a Danforth or a Fortress, would, would hold in those conditions. Um, but in that case, I think it would have you'd have trouble getting the anchor to bite through the grass. So you might have to, like, dive down and set it by hand. I don't know. At any rate, I found the whole experience of dragging anchor and sitting out the cold front on, on pins and needles to be to be pretty scary and intense. Um, I remember coming on deck in all that wind and rain and my just my stomach dropping knowing we had to deal with the situation. Uh, my mouth went completely dry. Uh, and interestingly, I think Ryan found the whole attempted Bahamas crossing more frightening than the anchor incident. Um, but between those two experiences, I think our beginner's optimism became tempered with uh, the realization of, of two things. Uh, the first was just, just the raw power of wind and of nature. Um, and we're talking about a cold front where it blew really hard for five or six hours and then hard for a few days in more or less protected waters. Uh, and it just it gave us an inkling of what the stakes are. Um, the second realization is that even in a place where help is near at hand, you're still 100% responsible for looking after yourself. Uh, you know, the old joke about where's a policeman when you need one, you know, calling the Coast Guard or CETO wouldn't have kept us out of the mangroves or off of the reef. You know, we needed to act and we had only ourselves to rely on. Uh, and that's a sobering realization. And I think maybe that's the deal you have to make for the freedom that sailing affords. You know, the attraction, aside from the sailing itself, is to experience life on your own terms, to choose when, where, and how to be the author of your days. And with that freedom comes the absolute responsibility for yourself and your crew. Uh, and learning this, and that these these lessons and these 
precepts apply even in relatively benign waters was it was a heavy thing for us to take on and it definitely affected our confidence and our outlook during the remainder of the trip uh, for better or worse and there's a there's something in psychology called the dunning-kruger effect which is worth reading into a bit uh, but it essentially says that the most incompetent people tend to rate their performance the highest and the level of competence that is self-reported actually falls with increasing competence uh, up to a point, and that point being mastery of a skill. Um, and I would say that this was certainly borne out by our experience. Uh, we became a, a reluctant case study in the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, and I guess the, uh, the silver lining is that our plummeting confidence indicated, uh, hopefully, at least a, a modest increase in competence. <laughs> All right, so that's it for this week. Uh, my current plan is to switch to a bi-weekly publishing schedule. Uh, I think that should be manageable. I've got a few more episodes worth of ICW stories, uh, and I'm hoping to start doing some interviews and chats with interesting sailors. Uh, and that is my primary goal in starting this podcast, is to, to have access and to have an excuse to, to pick people's brains. Uh, so if you have any suggestions for interviews, uh, and importantly, have the ability to make an introduction... Uh, hit me up at thebonnieboat at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at thebonnieboat, uh, the Facebook as well. Uh, and as always, if you've been enjoying the podcast, uh, leave me a review um, wherever you're listening. Uh, and thanks. <laughs>